beautiful rendition of the Song of the Cross medley played skillfully by our Redemption Bell team draws our attention to that symbol of our redemption, the cross upon which Jesus died. When people see the cross, they automatically think of Jesus Christ or Christianity. It is recognizable everywhere you go. The cross is a powerful statement of faith and love and hope for all of mankind. But the cross itself was nothing special. It was just two pieces of wood fastened together, designed to be a torture device for the world's most hardened criminals. What made this particular cross unique was not the wood from which it was made, or the hands that fashioned it, or the hill on which it stood. What made this cross, and thus every cross thereafter special, was the one, the one who hung on it that day. He wasn't a criminal, but he took our crimes. He wasn't guilty, but he took our sins. He wasn't just any other man. He was God, and he is great.
Let those words sink in. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in that on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. As we consider the cross and the powerful statement it makes in our world, it is important to remember that the story does not end there. In fact, if it did, we wouldn't be here today. He took our sins and our sorrows, and he made them his very own. He bore that burden to Calvary to suffer and to die alone. When he uttered those words, it is finished, and darkness fell on the earth. The sacrifice was made, the law was fulfilled, our debt had been paid in full. But Jesus didn't simply die, he conquered death. In the darkest night, he is the morning light. I am here to tell you, my friends, last night may have been difficult, but the darkness must give way to the hope of the morning light. Last night the disciples had supper with Jesus, their last meal together before he was betrayed. After prayer in the garden, he was arrested, tortured and questioned until the next day. Sleeping outside of the grave, unaware that their prisoner was stirring inside. The stone rolled away, Jesus stepped from the darkness. The dawning outbreak had finally arrived. This morning, the rose blooms in the garden. The fragrance of victory still fills the air. Last night there was weeping with no consolation. 
There are things as we travel this earth's shifting sands that transcend all the reason of man. But the things that matter most in this world, they can never be held in our hands. I believe that the Christ who was slain on that cross has the power to change lives today. For he changed me completely. A new life is mine. And that is why by that cross I will stay. I believe that this life with its great mysteries surely someday will come to an end. But faith will conquer the darkness of death and will lead me at last to my friend. Do you believe that tonight? Is it real to you? Do you believe that God loved you so much that he gave his only son? Do you believe that Jesus willingly took your sins and hung on that cross? Do you believe that he conquered death so you don't have to? Do you believe that he is preparing for you a home in heaven? Then why cling to the temporary things of this world? Why cling to fame, fortune, or possessions? Why focus on things that in eternity won't even matter? Focus on him. Focus on what he did for you. And focus on what you can do for him.
wonderful singing, and I appreciate so very much of that. Would you stand together, take your Bibles, turn to John chapter number 20. John chapter number 20. For those of you who have a Bible, you'll turn there. If you'd like to follow along on the screen on this special Resurrection Sunday, we're putting the verses on the screen if you'd like to read them there. If you'd follow along, I'll begin reading, and then periodically we'll ask you to read together with me, if you would please. John chapter 20, verse number 1, down to verse number 18. The Bible says, The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, in the suppler, unto the sepulcher, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Then she runneth, and cometh to Simon Peter and other disciple, whom Jesus loved, and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter, therefore, went forth and that other disciple and came to the sepulcher. So they ran both together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter and came to the place of the sepulcher. Would you read verse number 5 and 6 with me, please? And he, stooping down and looking in, Verse 7, the Bible says that, uh, and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, was wrapped together in a place by itself. Then they went in also the other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher. And would you read the rest of that verse with me? And he saw, verse number 9, the Bible says, for as yet they knew not the scripture that he must arise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again into their own home. But Mary stood without the sepulcher weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher. And seeth two angels in white sitting, and one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing, and knew not that it was Jesus. Would you read verses 15 through 18 with me together? And Jesus... Jesus saith unto her, Mary, turned herself, and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren, and say unto them, In your Father, and to my God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples. She had seen the Lord, and had seen the 
Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for the privilege to share for a few moments your wonderful truth about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. It's the gospel. It's simple. Jesus loved us. He came and innocently died so that we could live. He was separated from you, Heavenly Father, so we would not have to be separated from you. He, the innocent, died for us, the guilty. I pray that you would make the gospel clear. I pray that, Lord, it would challenge us. Those who have heard it many, many times, may we be refreshed to hear it again. And then those who maybe have come without the assurance of sins forgiven, without the knowledge that one day they'll spend eternity with you forever because of Jesus, may that be a reality tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you very much. You may be seated. Of course, the book of John is just one of uh, many places in the Gospels where the story of Jesus is told. Matthew tells us that Jesus is the king. Mark, he's the servant. Luke, he's the son of man. And John, he's the son of God. John gives us the book of the Bible that gives us the most information about the last few days of Jesus' life is in the book of John. He begins in chapter 13, and he meets with his disciples, and he gives them uh, the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper. He washes their feet and shows servitude and humility to them. Then he makes his way and reminds them, as, as Judas has left, that your heart doesn't need to be troubled. You need to exercise faith. If you believe in God, believe also in me. And he told them, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to repair a place for you. And if I go to repair a place, I'm going to come back and get you again. Because he's the way, he's the truth, and he's the life. He speaks then about the Holy Spirit. Chapter 15 is the, the discourse of the vineyard. He said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. That uh, if you can't, if you're not, if you're not abiding with me, you can't bear fruit. And without me, you can do nothing. And that's true. Chapter 16, he prepares them and tells them more about the comforter, the Holy Spirit that's going to come and indwell them. And it'll be, it'll be expedient and best for him to go away so the Holy Spirit can be in all of them. While he was on the earth, Jesus was somewhat, he was, uh, he was God in a human body, and, and, and confined to one body and one location. But his spirit can be anywhere in the world and indwelling anyone who would put their faith in Jesus. In chapter 17, he makes his way to the garden, and the Lord tells us that he prayed in the garden. I would encourage many of you to take time occasionally to read the prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17. I think it will help us in understanding the relationship that Jesus had with his Father and the relationship that we can have with our Heavenly Father. While he was in the garden, that's when Judas and the Jewish soldiers and the posse came to get Jesus. They came with lights in the middle of the night, late in the evening. They came with lights. They came with sticks and swords and weapons and numbers and a mob that came. As they came, Jesus did not wait to go to them to come to him. The Bible says he, was, he went up and met them. He went to where they were. And it shows us that our Savior is fearless. He is not afraid. He's God. 
And he didn't wait for them to come. He wasn't nervous. He wasn't afraid. The Bible says he knowing that all things would come to pass. So he stood up and he went to where they were. And he says, who are you looking for? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am he. I am. <laughs> and they fell down. They got back up and he said, now who are you looking for? It's Jesus of Nazareth. I am. And of course, I am is very significant. He's God. He's the true God. And he said, I am him. Of course, there was an altercation with Peter. And then Judas, no doubt, steps away. They take him by force. And they take him to the first of six hearings that he will have in the next 18 hours. He will meet first with Annas, the father-in-law of the high priest, in a Jewish kangaroo court at the time. He is there, and then he they take him over to Caiaphas, the high priest, who had already predicted two times that one man is going to die for the whole nation. He had already told them, he prepared them, it's predetermined Jesus was going to be executed. He was going to die. And Caiaphas there, and as they do, as oftentimes tactics go when you're interviewing someone who's a criminal, you're trying to get them to talk hoping that they'll enslave themselves in their own conversation. They were trying to get him to talk. He said, now, are you God, is what they wanted to know. What was his opinion? Was Jesus truly God? And he said, look, I, I spoke publicly. <laughs> I, I, I've been speaking for three and a half years. People, hundreds and thousands of people have heard me. Ask them what I said. And then the guy beside him smacks him in the face. He said, don't talk to the high priest, so. And he said, well, if I said something wrong, then I understand that. But I didn't say anything wrong. Why are you hitting me? And they take him from there, it seems to be to the Sanhedrin, which is the group of Jewish leaders who wake up in the middle of the night on the night prior to Passover, they're all in a fury and they come and uh, they determine early in the morning to take him to Pilate. Pilate is a Roman leader and Pilate and the Jews and the Jewish leadership there at the time who are determined to kill him, determined to get rid of him. They, they are really not, they're not, they're not good fellows. They're not, they're not together. But they show up at Pilate's place. They wake him up, it seems like, early in the morning. They do not go into the pavement or into the court or into the courtroom there because they want to take the Passover later that day. And they shove him in there, maybe with a couple of their guards, and they say, here, do something with him. We talked about that this morning. They begin to tell him, and he says, what has he done? He says, we didn't bring him. If we wouldn't have brought him to you if he didn't do anything wrong, he said, well, then you take care of him. He said, hey, we can't. We're not allowed to execute him. He's worthy of death. And of course, in the Jewish hearings, they were, con they were condemning him as a blasphemer because he made himself God. And he would be, except he was God. In the Roman court, he is being accused of treason. He is being accused of treason, revolting against the Roman government, saying that people are saying he's their Jew, he's our king of the Jews. 
And boy begins to, they begin to go to that. And of course, Pilate, he, he, uh, he addresses him. He sends him over to Herod and then brings him back. And then finally, he has got his arm twisted by the leadership. And he beats him mercilessly with a cat of nine tails, hoping that he can get rid of them. He even suggested, how about... Uh, it's Passover. I usually let one guy go. It's a custom at your Passover. You get one of your Jewish prisoners to be released. Can I release him? And they say, no. Give us Barabbas. He was a robber in John. He was a murderer in Matthew. Matthew calls him a murderer. He probably, his cohorts were on each side of Jesus, most likely. The Bible tells us in chapter 19 that he was beaten with a cat of nine tails. One of the Roman soldiers, the torturers, they would take a stick with, with uh, nine strings of, of metal and glass and, and uh, iron, and inside they're sharpened. And they would, all, they would whip him with strength, and it would wrap around and pull back and shred the skin. Oftentimes, they tell us in historic things that a man would be stretched out like this, being hit in his ears, in his head, in his face, his shoulders, his stomach. And occasionally, a man would be disemboweled. His stomach, his intestines would just fall at his feet. Because of the beating, rarely would a man even endure that. And so as not to go more than that, they would do 39 times, not over 40. We see the, the manhood of Jesus. We see the strength. I think sometimes the pictures of Jesus are as, as though he's soft and pleasant and beautiful. But I think you would probably see him as a construction worker. Someone who worked in building, framing houses and doors and cabinets and furniture. He was someone who's, I think if you shook Jesus' hand, it would have been rough. It would have been strong. They begin to mock him, and the Roman soldiers now have been given custody of Jesus, and they put on him a purple robe and, and uh, laugh at him, mocking both Jesus and the Jews. Here is your king, and they put a crown of thorns upon his head and begin to beat it around his head. Then Pilate, thinking it's it's going to be okay. By now, they surely have done. He said, you know, he, he calls him in. And, and the people said, are you done? Or here's your king. He said, no, we want him crucified. Finish the job. He said, what in the world have you done? Who are you? Why do you want that? He said, he says he's God. He says he's the son of God, which caused Already, Pilate had been more fearful. He was already in over his head. He was already dealing with deity, and he felt it. His wife told him, I've had a terrible dream. Have nothing to do with this man. Don't do it. He's already got all kinds of consternation going, but he feels like he's got to appease the people. Keep peace in Jerusalem with the Roman government. Take care of these folks who are coming to him at the expense of this innocent one. And of course, after talking to Jesus, not responding, 
not giving him. He said, look, don't you know I've got power over you to do whatever I want to do to you? And he said, you don't have any power but of God. Every power, if you're a dad, it's delegated. If you're a pastor, it's delegated. There's no, if you're a president, every power that anyone has is delegated. All of it comes from the Lord, and, and he, he let Pilate know that. But of course, they went on. And by now, he, he says, behold your king. And they said, crucify him. Finish the job. And then he carries a cross. I think John so much talks about the unexpected cross that Simon helped him with. Brother Mike preaches a good message on that. But he, he takes the cross and he carries it up from the place of the pavement to uh, the, uh, the, the, the Golgotha Hill. And I've had the joy to be there and, and to see that place. And of course, they put the thieves on both sides and they put Jesus in the middle. And they take his body and put it on there and nail his hands and his feet. And they suspend him between heaven and earth. They drop it into the ground causing his joints oftentimes of the shoulders to come out of joint, the elbows oftentimes. They put another, they put his feet and they tie it and, and excuse me, they, they, they nail it there and he has to push up to breathe. Most people who die, it, it was made to be a thousand deaths in one. It was made to make people, and they would make sure that the people could see it. So that they ever tried to give the Roman government any problems, they would know it's not worth it. They pulled his clothes off. If he wasn't naked, he was almost naked. Laying on that, embarrassed, shame, bludgeon, beaten, trying to breathe, pushing up with his legs, maybe his shoulders, no bones were broken. But there he's on the cross, and he goes to those hours on the cross between heaven and earth, between him and his Father. And of course, he makes his seven statements. He is on the cross, among other things. He, we find that almost all the other disciples are at least following afar off. John seems to be there. Mary, his own mother, is there. Salome or another girl named Mary, and Mary Magdalene are all there watching it take place. No doubt, very emotional. And there at the end of that crucifixion, numbers of things happen. They begin to gamble for his clothes. They're going to part it and send it home. And they said, let's just gamble it for it. Let's just cast lots for it, that it might be fulfilled. It was a prophetic event. One of the things he said is, I thirst. And they took some sour wine or sour vinegar and mixed with water and put it on a hyssop. Somebody, a hyssop, you, you probably have seen those before, kind of like a sponge. And they stuck it up in his face, bleeding, bludgeoned. They shove it up in his face. And then the Bible says he gave up the ghost, and he said one final word. Not sure which one he said first. One that the gospel said is finished. The other one said he gave up into thy hands. I commend my spirit. But one of those things he said, and it was over. The death had been done. But that did not save us. 
The death of Jesus itself was not what brings payment of sin. There would be three days. There would be time to be gone on between the crucifixion and, and his resurrection. We know this in Matthew or John chapter number 19 at the end. Two unlikely people pull him off of the cross. The Bible tells us that it was coming close to Passover, and the Jews petitioned Pilate and said, you've got to, you've got to, it's almost Passover. He needs to die before Passover. He needs to die early. And they came and they went to the other thieves on the sides who did not endure such persecution. And they took something like a ball bat and they would break their, their legs, either their femur or their tibia or fibia. They would break it so they couldn't push up anymore and they would die fast. They broke both of their legs. One of them said, if you're really Christ, if you're really the God, get us off this cross. The other one said, remember me. He didn't do anything wrong. We did something wrong, speaking to his other comrade across the, across the hill. They came and they smote his, they broke their legs. And when they came to break Jesus' leg, they didn't have to. He was already gone. And it would fulfill a promise and a, and a prophecy in Psalms 22, and I think in verse number 18, that not a bone of his would be broken. But to make sure, it looks like the soldier took the spear and shoved it up under his rib cage into his heart and went, came out blood and water. There's some significance of that's not important this evening to us. I don't think. Nonetheless, that happened. And then Joseph of Arimathea, a man who had wealth and access. Oftentimes, the wealthy have access where the poor does not. The Bible says the wealthy have many friends, but the poor uses entreaty. But because of Joseph of Arimathea, he had his own sepulcher there that was for him, it seems to be. And then his friend, Nicodemus. Nicodemus, this was his coming out identification to Jesus. He had had a conversation with him in John chapter 3 at nighttime. It seems like he may have heard the words, For God so loved the, that he gave his only begotten Son. That whosoever believed in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But then Nicodemus later on spoke up for Jesus. And his fellow Sanhedrin, his fellow Pharisees said, are you a Galilean too? Are you with him? And of course, he, he did not fess up. But on this day, he went with Joseph in front of God and everybody, and he pulled the body of Jesus off. He brought, it seems to be, that Joseph provided the, the sepulcher. But Nicodemus brought a lot of the spices. A hundred pound weight, not the same as a hundred pound that we would have. I think the Jewish or the Roman weight may have been 12 ounces to a pound, a little bit less maybe. But maybe over 50, 60, 70 pounds of, of spices and things that they would wrap the body of Jesus in and wrap him and turn him over and take him. 
If it is the, if it is the same sepulcher that we saw in Israel, it's probably maybe 100 yards, maybe, maybe 150 to 200. Brother Ray Young might be able to help us more with that. From where I remember the garden was on the hill, down the hill and over to that garden tomb. But these two wealthy men wrapped his body and put it in and sealed it. The Jews petitioned Pilate and said, listen, wherever he sealed, you make sure that, you, that he sealed because uh, we don't know what's going to happen. He said one day that if, the, if you destroy this temple in three days, it'll come back and somebody might want to be tricky and that kind of thing. So they hired the, the Jewish, excuse me, the Romans put guards there. They sealed the tomb. They put a guard there for the next 72 hours to watch the body of Jesus, or at least the three days there, and watched it. And of course, on that Sunday morning, we find that Mary Magdalene comes. It's before the daylight, before the sun comes up. It's been a challenging time. I'm sure a disappointing time with the disciples. They're in Jerusalem for the Passover. Most of them are Galileans, but it seems to be they're in Jerusalem. And they come to that place. And they're staying there. And Mary Magdalene slips out. And she is um, going to, or Mary's going to the tomb. And she goes, and the stone is rolled away. It doesn't appear that she looks inside. She just sees the stone is moved. She immediately runs to wherever Peter and John are staying. They're Galileans. They probably live in Capernaum, but they have a place where they stay when they come to Jerusalem. She goes there in the early morning hours, wakes them up, and tells them, someone has stolen the body of our Savior. Someone has taken him. That was her initial thought. The Bible tells us that Peter and John immediately, whether they are awake or wake up or whatever, early morning, they run together, both of them. And of course, they are of the, tw of the three of the twelve that had been in the inner circle with Jesus. And they run, and the Bible tells us that John went and ran ahead. They left together, but John got there faster. But John did not look inside. He just saw the same thing that Mary saw. But when Peter came, Peter obviously more proactive. He steps inside and he looks and sees that it's empty. And John does as well. And they see the grave clothes there. No body but grave clothes. And then they see a napkin that would go around his head, folded it seemed. Folded and placed in a certain place. There is some Clyde Box years ago as a great evangelist. And he would talk about the folded napkin. And how that uh, a master who was, uh, whenever he was, uh, uh, have, have people that would serve him, when he was done with his meal and he wasn't going to use anymore and he was ready to be taken away, he would just put the napkin down there. But if he folded his napkin, it meant, don't touch my food, I'm coming back. And uh, he would speak about the fact that God is coming back. And while he waits, he's, gonna, he's still wanting to save sinners. He wants to sanctify saints. He wants to use you and I. He wants to do his purpose in this 
life that he has a folded, a folded napkin there. He's coming back. He's not going away. He's gone away, but he's coming back. But I want you to notice there's several, several things here that happen in this story with Mary, with Peter, and with John. And it has to do with what they see. Very important. John says they looked, they saw, they had seen, and then they believed. I don't know exactly what it's like. I don't know what it's like to be in there. I think it's kind of interesting that, that John and Peter see it's empty. They don't see an angel there. They just see an empty tomb. They see the, the remains of Jesus, his, his head cloth folded, wrapped neatly, it seemed to be. And then they leave, but Mary stays there crying. And then she goes in, and she goes in, and she sees two men, angels, sitting at the head and the foot. And they ask her, why are you crying? They said, well, someone's taken the body of my Lord. Where, they're taking him. I don't know where they're, they're taking him. They've, they've robbed him. They've taken him away. And then she backs out and she sees what she thinks is the gardener. I don't know what time this is, if it's six or seven or eight. Time for them to go and come back. They come in and, and they... So they've taken, they've taken the body. They've taken the body, and here she sees what she thinks is a gardener. And he calls her name, Mary. And she knew it wasn't the gardener. She knew his voice. It looks like to me she just fell at his feet and grabbed him and held him. And he says, touch me not, and I think that's kind of like, don't let go of me. I've not yet ascended to my father. Of course, we know that, that Joseph, or excuse me, Thomas would be, he asked him, touch him. He could touch his body, but she, he let go of me. I'm, I'm, tell the disciples, I'm going to Galilee. Go tell them that I'm alive. With this story, I want to just remind you that the resurrection, what's the big deal about the resurrection? Number one, it's a fact. Amen. Three things tell us that the resurrection is true. Number one, an empty tomb. It would have been something if that empty tomb is, is there in Jerusalem. Now, there's all kinds of things going on there. People said that um, it's stolen the body away while, they, while the prisoners slept, and they were paid off to say that. We see that in another passage of Scripture. But it, the empty tomb was right there in the same city that he was crucified in. If that empty tomb would have been out in some other country town or something of that nature... But it happened right there in the same place. It's also interesting that the empty tomb uh, is evidence, but also eyewitnesses of the resurrected body of Christ. Another thing that was kind of crazy is that women were the first to see it. In that day, women did not have the clout to even be witnesses on a trial, or their, their credibility was not taken. And if certainly a lady giving that testimony, but it was, it was obvious. We find also that Jesus, the Bible tells us in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that, that 500 people saw him at one time. He was saw, seen in different places. And 500 people at one time. Well, if you get an evidence, if you have 500 people come into a trial to witness, I think you're going to win. 
There have been other folks who've said, oh, you know what? They all lied. It's just a big lie. Well, people might live for a lie, but rarely do people die for a lie. When they know it's not true. People say they hallucinated. Some people who were adversarial toward the, the resurrection will say, oh, they, they were all a hallucination. It's interesting that even Paul later on, an, an, an adversary to Christianity, he saw Jesus too and responded to him. I don't think he was hallucinating. Do you? The truth of the matter is, he resurrected. It's a fact. And then we have, not only do we have an empty tomb, do we have eyewitnesses of the Lord, but we have the expansion and the establishment of Christianity ever since. Never remember, I'll never forget the day that I accepted Jesus as my Savior. Not because of who I am, but someone loved me enough to show me from the Bible how I could have eternal life. But the reason I heard it is because someone else heard it in front of me and someone else heard it in front of them. And it went through the centuries. Over 20, almost 20 centuries have passed since this event. The expansion of Christianity. But I think also the, 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 the resurrection is important because it's a fact. Number two, it's foundational to our beliefs. If you don't have a resurrection, you don't have Christianity. Tonight, I think someone's going to get baptized this evening, maybe several. But baptism pictures, and the best time to get baptized, in my opinion, would be an Easter evening. It's great. But in baptism, you stand in water, you go underwater, you come up out of water, picturing the death, the burial, and the... Boy, if you didn't have the resurrection, every baptism would be a fatality. <laughs> We're just dead, buried, done, you know. It shows the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Apostle Paul, let's take our Bibles and just hold them there real quickly, but hold it there in John. But let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Of course, in the book of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is debating and challenged the, the, the believers there in Corinth because they had taken um, issue with, um, with the resurrection. Someone had been teaching them. And by the way, uh, usually when there's false doctrine, someone's talking that you should not be listening to. Look at verse number 33, just, by, just for, for chapter 15, verse 33. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt what? Good manners. You start listening to the wrong kind of teaching, it'll mess you up. Verse number 13 of chapter 15, the Bible says, But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. Verse 14, read it with me out loud, would you? And if Christ... What two things are in vain if Jesus didn't rise again? Preaching in your faith. We have nothing to stand on. I shared it this morning, but David, David Seaman is a, is a missionary, and he led some Muslim men to the Lord. But one Muslim young man who got saved and accepted Jesus and his forgiveness of sin, he was being quizzed by his other Muslim friends. Why? Why would you leave Islam to come to Jesus? And he said, you know, it's like traveling a road. 
For me, it's like traveling a road and you come to a fork in the road and there are two men at the fork and you don't know which way to go. One's alive and the other's dead. Who would you listen to? And what he was saying is that he realized that Jesus was alive. He ever liveth. He maketh intercession for us. He died, but he didn't say that. He rose again. He said, I'd rather serve a living Savior. We'll serve a, a God and a Christ that is real versus something that is made. The Bible says we are to worship the Creator more than the creature. Oftentimes we find worship in other things, but we, and, and boy, you and I as Christians can fall, you know, it's important. You, you, probably the most popular show and season years ago was American Idol. <laughs> Giving worship to human beings versus the one who made the human beings. But we serve a living Savior. Why is the resurrection important? First of all, it's because... Of it's a fact, the empty turn, tune, the eyewitnesses of the Lord Jesus that saw him, the expansion of Christianity. There's nothing as freeing, in my opinion, as a relationship with the God of the Bible and his son, Jesus Christ. But I say also it's the foundation of our theology. If we don't have a resurrection, our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. Let's continue reading there back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you would, please. And you'll see a little bit more of the same thing. But let's look, if we can, please, at verse number 15. Yea, we found false witnesses of God, because ye have testified of God that he has raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead raise not. For if the dead raise not, rise not, then it is not Christ raised. Now read verse 17 with me, would you please? And if Christ... May I just remind you, when we leave this body, we either leave it in our sins or with God's Son. God has given us a wonderful, wonderful truth. And you don't want to leave this world in your sin. See, all of us have something in common. I'm going to wrap up here in just a moment. All of us have something in common. What we have in common is that we all have a human father. Every one of us. Now, you may not have a good relationship with your dad. Your dad might be someone that's not a good man or you haven't, you don't even know who he is. I've talked to some men the other day and they said, I've never met my dad. I don't know who my dad is. I don't know if he's alive or not. But in the heart of the person that told me that, they wish they had a dad. They wish they had a relationship with them. But because they are human beings, we have a human father. And because we have a human father, the Bible says that we have a sin nature. Every one of us, we think things, we say things, we do things that are wrong. Every day. And because we have a sin nature... We have a problem with God because God is not a sinner. The Bible says about God, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. He doesn't have any sin. Jesus didn't have any sin. One of the reasons we know why did Mary have to be a virgin? Why did Jesus have to be born without a human father? Because if he had a human father, he would have been a sinner just like me, just like you. Linda and I had those nine children, but I don't have to teach them how to sin. 
They come by it naturally. Because they have me and them, I have my dad and me. His dad and him, we have Adam and all of us. But through Jesus Christ, he who didn't have any sin became sin for us. See, Pastor, what's the big deal about the, about the death, the burial, and resurrection? That's how someone is saved. In the book of 2 Corinthians, the Bible says that God, the Father, made Jesus to be sin for us who himself, he didn't have any sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That we could be righteous. So if you and I try to go to God in our own righteousness, he said, there's none righteous, no, not one. All of us come short of the glory of God. If we had to pay for our own sin, the Bible's very clear. The payment of sin is to die. Physically separated from our body and loved ones and eternally separated from God. Well, God loves us. We heard that in the program tonight. He loves us. He doesn't want anyone to be separated from him. He didn't make you so that you would go to the lake of fire. He made you so that you could have redemption and freedom in Jesus. He wanted to forgive you, but that must be accepted. When Jesus died, he did all that was needed to be done so you and I could be saved. But we, just because he died for us, does not mean we're all saved. We have to believe and receive the gift of eternal life. If you're here tonight, you say, Pastor, I am not sure when my life is over that I'll go to heaven. I'm not sure my sins have been forgiven. It's a wonderful thing to know that Jesus did for me what I could not do for myself. Jesus died so you and I could live. He was separated from his father, so you and I do not have to be separated from God. You can have forgiveness. The load of sin we carry can be relieved by the grace of Jesus. The Bible tells us, Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. What labors? What, you know, can you earn your way to heaven by being good and not doing bad? The Bible says, No. Don't labor trying to get your way to heaven. Are you carrying a heavy burden? Give it to the Lord Jesus. Exchange your sin for his sacrifice. And accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He came, and of course, Jesus appeared to Mary. He appeared to the twelve that night, except for Thomas, missed church on a Sunday night. Bad idea. And he appeared to them that evening. He, he did several times in different locations over the next 40 days, and then he went back to heaven. He's in heaven now. The Bible says that Jesus ever liveth, making intercession for you and I. And one day he's coming back to receive us to himself, that where he is, we can be also. But the way he'll receive you is if you have come to him with your sin and accepted his gift of eternal life.